Good morning and welcome to Legal Defense. Hope you're having a great weekend so far. Uh, finally seeing some characteristic weather for this time of year. Well, maybe not quite, but we're getting there. We can only hope. Um, it's been a long winter and a long cold spring. wonder when that summer weather is really going to kick in. Say, I ha attended a very interesting and informative presentation at the John Michael Kohler Arts Center earlier this week, and it was a presentation by two individuals that have um, formed their own uh, you know, private for-profit businesses that uh, help and encourage people that have been incarcerated understand uh, what their rights are and facilitates uh, not only those that have served sentences, but those that are incarcerated awaiting disposition of their cases in various county jails throughout the state uh, in an effort to, number one, uh, increase public awareness, the fact that there are people who are both eligible to vote that are not being provided uh, reasonable access to all the information that they need because they're incarcerated. And number two, uh, people that have lost their right to vote but can regain it. Um, and there were some very interesting points. These two individuals had both been through um, a, a very long history of um, criminal involvement and sentences and felony convictions and had personally experienced the you know, firsthand the the types of problems and limitations that the challenges that occur when trying to become a productive member of society, someone who's done their time, served their sentence, and the the problems that they continue to experience by being, you know, branded not only a criminal but a felon, and how that affects uh, one's not only consciousness of their significance in society because they're being told that at least while you're on paper, while you're on extended supervision or parole or whatever the case may be, or you continue in Wisconsin anyway to not be able to vote. You have to complete every component of your sentence in order to regain that right. So let's kind of back up and talk about what that whole situation is because Wisconsin is one of the states of many that renders somebody with a felony conviction ineligible to vote in any election. And not only do they have to acknowledge that that's the case, but they're told that if they do, you know, there's a, there are consequences, including um, revocation of their parole um, and possible criminal charges because they're ineligible to vote and so forth and so on. And, and one of the things that came out at this, uh, meeting was that uh, we don't really do enough to explain to people that are in that situation that they can, in fact, by completing their uh, parole or their supervision, regain that right to vote. We do a lot to make sure that they know they can't during that period of time, but there's a lot of people that simply are not told that they can regain that right and that, you know, one day when you're done serving all that stuff, you can you can again participate in our election process by voicing your opinion. And 
I hadn't really thought about it that way before, but they were absolutely right. I mean, they encounter people all the time that have served their sentence and completed their post-incarceration supervision and had no idea that they could, you know, again, resume their right to vote because nobody tells them. Not only that, but again, that, that mental mindset where one is being told, you don't count, you're not part of all of these things that are going on. Every discussion about an election that's coming up and what positions different candidates have, you know, for years, these folks end up being told that, it, you know, you don't count, you're never mind, you know, here's all the information, but doesn't apply to you. And one gets in that mindset, along with all the other challenges that they face that, you know, they become very disinterested in politics. And that's, again, something I hadn't really thought about before, but this process makes it so people disengage from the process. Now, Wisconsin's a little different from um, some other states. Uh, there are states in this country, I know that there's a few southern states, that when someone is convicted of a felony, they permanently, forever, lose the right to vote, no matter what happens, even if they successfully complete every component of that sentence. And you know, not only is that wrong, it's just, it makes no sense. But I don't think it makes sense that we you know, deprive somebody the right to vote based on something that may have happened 20, 30, or 40 years ago. Um, and if they're still on supervision, which is supposed to be a good thing, by the way, if somebody is being not only monitored, but helped, um, you know, find their way. We, we have this philosophy in our country that when one, when you commit the crime, you do the time. And when you're done with your time, you've done what you were supposed to do. We order somebody into incarceration that one of these individuals had served a 21 year sentence and was released last year. And I know from the work that I do, the, um, the, the, the process that one goes through when waiting for that, that day, when they know they're going to be released, uh, there's this anticipation, the daily, you know, the old, uh, cliche that someone's, you know, marking off the days on the calendar on the, on the wall until that day comes. And, you know, the people I've talked to that have been in that situation, um, there's this anticipation that, you know, they're going to be free. They're going to go, they're going to be able to do the things that they aren't able to do when incarcerated. They're going to be able to go out and walk wherever they want. They'll be able to, you know, do anything that uh, normal citizens can do. They can be with loved ones. You can go to a restaurant and get a nice steak dinner and enjoy it. You can sleep in. <laughs> you can get up early. You can stay up late. You can do... You can go anywhere, you can do anything. And, you know, that's kind of what freedom means, right? That self-determination, the ability to guide your life, the ability to make your choices and stand by them. And we uh, know that we put people in a situation where almost universally they end up becoming... Uh, finding themselves in a situation where it's much harder than they ever anticipated. And think about this, uh, you know, especially if it's a lengthy sentence. And this individual I was talking to was, you know, went into custody in 2000. So think about what technology was like in the year 2000. 
And and by the way, he was 19 years old when he went into custody. So, you know, didn't have a cell phone. The internet was kind of there, but not really. Um, and all the things that have changed in the past 21, 22 years. And just that sense of having lost out on everything else that the world has done is pretty significant, pretty weighty when you think about it. But also, through no choice of his own, you know, the state provided uh, a bed for him to sleep on, fed him three times a day, uh, gave him activities to do and, you know, jobs to perform, didn't have any bills, uh, didn't have to worry about bankruptcy, didn't have to worry about providing for a family, didn't have to worry about paying student loans, didn't have to worry about a lot of things, because that's the natural consequence of incarceration, is that one doesn't do those things. And to go for a couple of decades, and then all of a sudden have to learn all of that from scratch, and the last time he was a free man, he was a teenager, um, you know, it, it's it's really kind of interesting when you think about the fact that was this something that benefited society now sure we do have this philosophy that when someone does something wrong they have to uh, accept the consequences and that's all fine and there's reasons why we do that but this emphasis on removing somebody from society just as a component of the um, resolution of such a process. And granted, there's emotion, there's uh, anger, there's a lot of things, especially when someone's hurt or loses their life. That's all perfectly understandable. But the bigger picture is, you know, what are we doing here when we're creating a population of people that are, we're almost uh, forcing them into situations where they're going to feel like, uh, lesser human beings. And that's not part, supposed to be part of a sentence. You're not supposed to um, be exiled. We don't deport people to Siberia. We don't send people off to a, you know, we don't uh, put people on an island and say, fend for yourself until you die. We don't, we don't do things like that in a civilized country. All right, we'll be right back after these messages. So think about this. If somebody is... Uh, unquestionably uh, a racist and they hold those beliefs and they you know counter to what we hope people believe we allow that we don't tell people that uh, you know as long as they're not acting out in a criminal way um, people are entitled to believe whatever they want and if it's a flat-out pure racist belief where they hate other races and and so on, uh, that person can vote, right? What, on the other hand, what if somebody is an espoused member of the Communist Party, um, is strictly anti-capitalist, um, believes that the government should be, you know, replaced by a system of distribution of wealth to the common man, that person can vote too. Um, if somebody is just an overall bad person and treats others with contempt um doesn't take responsibility for their vote by not researching candidates by you know randomly picking somebody on the ballot 
that person can vote too. Likewise, somebody who doesn't care and doesn't go to the voting polls, well, that person is perfectly entitled to do that. We do our best not to stifle people, regardless of what their opinions are, in their ability to exercise that very important right to vote. And why? Because we want to have faith, we want to have faith in the integrity of our election process. Now, lately, of course, there have been a lot of controversial issues that may or may not be impacting the general populace's faith in that that process and as to whether or not it's truly fair, things are truly counted. Part of this goes back to the creation of the Electoral College, which in and of itself is based upon the fact that, um, you know, kind of an arcane principle that uh, I, I think part of it is just mechanics, that it's difficult to, at least back when this whole process was created, to actually round up and count every single vote. So part of it is based upon the mechanics of how an election can be conducted and and allowing local processes to do some of that work, even in, an, in a federal election, so that electors, if they're doing their responsible job, um, can reflect what the local governments have done in terms of tallying their votes. So that kind of makes sense. You know, it's a, it's a way that we can, um, at least before we had the kind of technology we have right now, a way to more expediently um, determine who the winner is. But we don't, we don't tell people that you can't vote if you um, hate the government or you love the government or, you know, let's say, you know, your son or daughter is running for office. The parents can vote. They're biased. They know who they're going to vote for, but we don't stop them from doing that. In other words, we don't anticipate what a person might believe in determining whether or not they should have that right to vote. And by the way, the right to vote, constitutionally speaking, is is not limited. Now, again, we got to remember that didn't include women or slaves, right? Um, because those categories of people did not have the right to vote until much later in our country's history. But the reason that we re-examined the wisdom of only having, you know, men, white men, uh, vote in an election has been, you know, re-examined over and over again over the years, and, and it's been a concept that we have rejected. We don't say now that you have to, you know, all the things that were put into place in the early days of our country in order to render somebody eligible. These are all things, these are all layers that were, you know, added on after we had this basic concept of who, who are we talking about when we say citizens? And of course, we have much different and appropriate understanding of that. Again, you know, uh, slaves didn't count. Well, they did count for purposes of their representation, representatives, you know, three-fifths of a person counts. But certainly, um, you know, slaves or, or anybody that was not in that sense deemed a citizen for those purposes were not allowed to vote until, you know, well after the Civil War and the emancipation of slaves. And the process by which that all happened was, we're all familiar with it, an examination of what those constitutional freedoms mean and who they apply to. 
And it's everyone, right? That's the conclusion we've reached, not only by laws that have been enacted, but interpretations of the original constitutional principles. Um, but nowhere in there does it say, oh, unless, uh, you know, you do something that somebody else figures uh, takes that right away from you. And it's very controversial because, you know, we're not talking about, um, you know, a privilege. We're talking about a right. Okay. Now let's compare that with driving, which you've heard me talk about this many times in the show. The way that the law works as it relates to your quote unquote right to drive is such that it's treated not as a right, but as a privilege. Just like when you have a fishing license or a hunting license, that's a privilege. And because that all falls within the regulatory power of any given state, it can be, quote unquote, regulated in any way that they see fit, as long as it's closely connected to some um, valid governmental aim, such as if one's driving privileges are taken away as a result of a drunk driving conviction or as a result of too many speeding tickets or whatever the case may be. The regulatory function there is to keep the road safe, right? So legally speaking, that's permitted. Now, that doesn't apply. That same rationale does not apply when it comes to taking away the right to vote. Because that, again, that's not a privilege, it's a right. And it shouldn't be regulated by any state law. So, you know, we're going to see some litigation in the future, probably nationwide, on this issue. Because it's something that quite frankly, is still a remnant of Jim Crow era laws. When, say, for example, you know, post-Civil War, there were a number of laws that were created to both make it difficult for black people to vote, but also made it so there were ways to disenfranchise them. And an example is there was a law, I forget what state it is, but if a black person chooses to walk on the same side of the street as a white person, they can be arrested and convicted of a felony. Why? Because there was an effort in those states, especially some southern states, to make it so black people couldn't vote for other reasons after they had acquired that right to vote. And it was an, a, manip a manipulation of the system by those that felt uh, they didn't want to give minorities in those situations the ability to influence who governs them. Um, there's no question that those in elected positions do, in fact, govern all of us. But again, a systematic process whereby someone is put in a position where the state can say, uh, you can't, you can't vote anymore because this thing happened. And the example I just gave is just is one of many. Um, you know, there were states that had these vagrancy or trespassing uh, rules that um, would never apply to most white people because it would, they weren't intended to apply to white people. So someone who's going around town looking for a job because they're economically and socially disadvantaged um, could be deemed a vagrant because they're not they don't have a stable life situation and you accumulate a certain number of vagrancy convictions and it turns into a felony. 
These are all things that have a history of being designed to put people in a category where they won't, for whatever reason, and, and there aren't any good reasons, to make it so they have no voice in, in who governs them. Um, it leads me to another point, which is, <clears throat> I think there's this odd notion out there that if you allow people that have felony convictions to vote, they will vote for complete, you know, chaos and disruption of our way of life, and they'll be anti-government, pro-crime, whatever. Um, and first of all, it's an assumption that has no basis, in fact. And secondly, it's counter to the very notion that whatever we think or anticipate how someone might vote, it'd be like saying, hey, if you're a communist uh, or even a secret communist and we find out about it, you can't vote anymore. We don't do that. We've never, we've never done that. We've done some bad things as far as taking away those rights to vote or not giving them to certain classes of people to begin with. But that's not the way our country works. All right, we'll be right back after these messages. There is an argument out there that I hear frequently that if we threaten people out there who would otherwise be law-abiding citizens, that if they become a criminal and their thought process will naturally be, if I commit this crime, I may lose my right to vote and I don't want to do that. So I better not commit the crime. Uh, first of all, there's no, no data, no information to suggest that that is ever a factor in one's decision or, or really lack thereof, lack of, you know, an intentional act where they would say, hmm, well, you know, I'm, I'm desperate. I'm addicted to drugs. I'm homeless. I, you know, <laughs> I, I am committing crimes in, in a form, in a mode of survival. But, you know, if I steal something to support my drug habit, which is overwhelming, yeah, I might not get to vote. So, yeah, I better not. It doesn't work that way. The, the pressures and the influences and the things that make it so people end up committing crimes are multi-layered, very complex, and it has nothing to do with someone that... Uh, you know, may or may not decide to commit a crime. And by the way, you know, the vast majority of what we call crimes are things that that happen, and there's a limited decision-making process, including people that get killed. I mean, you know, think about it. You know, we we harshly punish, and and, and maybe rightfully so, uh, people who get behind the wheel they're too intoxicated to control their vehicle they end up in a crash and they kill somebody and that person goes to prison for a long time and of course it's a felony because it's a serious offense but do you think when someone is in that situation and they're like i can make it home i haven't had too much to drink um and, and they're wrong because they're impaired that they had the wherewithal and the the, the insight to say okay well um I'll take the risk. I may end up killing somebody, and you know, I I could end up paying the consequences of that. But you know what? If I can't vote, then I'll definitely get a ride home. It, it you know it doesn't work that way. And all the other things that happen. By the way, 
you know, if you are mentally ill and you don't know what planet you're living on because you have extreme schizophrenia or, or you have no ability to discern reality, or if you're someone who is a, you know, everyday, all day drinking alcoholic or constant drug user, there's no problem with you going to the polls and voting for whoever you want, even if you don't know what is going on, you know, but post conviction of a felony, we just categorize people as something that, you know, they don't count. And again, I think a part of it comes to this, come down to this irrational fear that somehow if we allow that to happen, there'll be this huge uprising of, uh, disgruntled criminals that will attempt to take over the government. Now, at this presentation, it was it was fascinating to me that these are two two folks, these two individuals that were are trying to not only work with uh, in the context of community resources, but to in, individuals that are out there that are. Um, in these types of situations. And one thing that hit me is that they're going from county to county in the state of Wisconsin and working with sheriff's departments to see what what are you doing with the people that are incarcerated non-felons. Now that includes people that are serving sentences that aren't felony sentences, could be some kind of misdemeanor, but it more importantly includes a lot of people that are accused of a crime that if convicted would be a felony, but they're not convicted of anything yet and presumed innocent. There are thousands of people in our state that that are in that situation because they are incarcerated. You know, hey, we talk about it all the time on this show that there's a big push to keep more people in custody pending, you know, the outcome of their case because of recent events like the tragedy that happened in Waukesha where the individual was released on a low cash bond, went out and drove his car through the Christmas parade and killed people. You know, that's being used as an example to say, we need to keep more people in custody and not let them out. So we're creating a higher population of people that in many instances, they are able to vote. They have the right to vote, but they are behind bars because they can't post the 50000 or or 100000 or $500,000 that, that's required to let them out, but they're still eligible to vote. So it comes down to uh, individual counties' policies as to how much um, accommodation they will allow for someone who has the right to vote in custody. And I can tell you, it varies greatly. There are some sheriff's departments that are in charge of these jails that, you know, uh, the answer that sometimes they hear is, hey, if anybody asks, We'll tell them all the steps you have to go through in order to be eligible to vote, which includes, of course, having a, an appropriate ID, which no one has when they're in custody, because if you happen to have your identification on you when you're arrested, it goes into, you know, basically a locker that can't be accessed until the person's released. You know, so <laughs> the barriers that are there that allows somebody to exercise that the fundamental and absolute right to vote. And there's no question that, that such an individual has a right to vote, but think about it. You're, you're behind bars waiting for, uh, you know, your case to come along and it, whether the person's guilty or not, eventually 
that adjudication has not yet occurred. They are they are allowed to vote. They are not a felon. I mean, again, thousands of people are in this situation. And granted, it may not be the first thing on someone's mind as to who they want to vote for, but what do we all normally do in order to educate ourselves and find out what the different positions of candidates are? Well, we we watch TV ads. We access the internet. We read the public record. We talk to others. We attend meetings, hear speeches, look at the literature, examine someone's voting record if they're an incumbent. You know, there's things that we, we, we want responsible voters to do. So someone who's in that situation obviously doesn't have access to any of that information. But again, what we're hearing in a lot of counties is, hey, if someone asks, I'll tell them, yeah, you have the right to vote, but figure it out on your own. So there has been some success. And, and in some ways, I think this is a bad thing that they're, we're finding counties that are making accommodations, you know, like you may call them uh, accommodating and uh, considerate sheriff's departments. OK, well, that's great. But if we start relying on that, first of all, it's not universal throughout the state. There's no law that requires um, that to be consistent from county to county. And obviously, you can have a different opinion in one county versus another county. Or there could be a sheriff that has a policy that understands this legal principle and then is replaced by another sheriff that doesn't share that same philosophy. So the, the, the lack of a universal standard here is really the issue and by trying to take care of it piecemeal by what just sitting down with the sheriff in all 72 counties and saying hey you know you understand of course there are people that have the right to vote in your jail and what are you doing about it and the answer could be nothing or everything i can and it, and it doesn't matter there's no legal effect okay so this is this is actually something that is becoming a, a pretty profound issue as it relates to opening the eyes to the public of how many people are actually in this situation. And if we go down this path of incarcerating more people that have not been convicted of their, their alleged crimes, we're going to see this problem increase. So there needs to be some form of legislation that applies throughout the state that protects an individual's right to exercise that right to vote. Um, how we do it, there's a lot of different ways that can be done. Um, it could be mandatory that people who are known to be eligible to vote are informed of exactly how to do so. We need to adjust um, the laws that require certain forms of ID in order for someone to vote to accommodate a situation where there is no question about the person's identity because they're being held in custody based on uh, an alleged crime. And there's a booking sheet that includes a person's name, date of birth, place of birth, um, their photo, their social security number, every bit of personal information um, that's found on a voter ID or driver's license and more and more personal identifying information. In fact, there's more certainty about the identity of the person incarcerated than there is for the average citizen that has just a regular driver's license or voter ID. So, it, you know, the, the information is there. 
So there's no concept here that we'd have to fear fraud occurring or anything like that. All right, we'll be right back. Heading into our final segment here, I want to switch gears and talk about a a decision that isn't really a decision that came out earlier this week from our Wisconsin Supreme Court. And the issue is um, we've all been anticipating you know, what's going to happen in this particular situation for quite some time. And it has to do with um, the, the inability for many, many people in our state to obtain representation. You know, the basic Sixth Amendment right to have counsel, which is very clear. And as you probably know, it wasn't until the case of Gideon versus Wainwright when it was determined that that right is so fundamental that it should not be dependent upon one's um, personal financial resources, which is kind of shocking. It, it took us until the 1940s, 50s, before that issue had actually bubbled to the surface to the point where it reached the Supreme Court. And the process by which uh, the U.S. Supreme Court held, yes, indeed, you know, it cannot be limited by one's financial status or financial resources when it comes to that ability to exercise one's right to counsel. And the remedy suggested by Mr. Gideon was sounded like a crazy one at the time, but it actually is the law of the land that if you can't afford a lawyer, the state has to provide one for you. Um and it was this huge gray area back then. It's still a gray area right now, by the way, <clears throat> for a number of reasons, which we all know and has been a frequent topic on this radio show. And that is that the way things currently stand, at least in our state, and I'll be honest with you, practically every other state has the same problem. In order to technically comply with the mandate from the U.S. Supreme Court that is part of that Gideon um, rule is that if someone is indigent, they will have a lawyer provided to them. The problem is, as you can probably tell, the term indigent is not defined anywhere, and states determine what that is. And, it, and you can't put a number on it. You can't say at a certain dollar amount somebody is not indigent anymore because of the resources they have, because that would change over time, right? The value, you can't say if someone has $10 in their pocket in 1961, it's the same standard in 2022, do you have $10 in your pocket? Of course, it has to be something that, you know, realistically reflects what we consider to be one's right to counsel and where they're expected to have that with their own out of their own resources. And it's interesting when you think about it because the way hospitals work, they treat people without appropriate resources uh, to pay for their medical care constantly, right? It's one of the big controversies in our society is that uh, doctors, hospitals, emergency rooms have an obligation to treat. They can't turn people away if they can't pay up front. So what have we done? Well, we've created a huge industry that, number one, um, finds a way to fund all of that by means of um, insurance payments through insurance companies and inflated insurance premium costs because of the fact that 
hospitals are required to treat people and not require them to be financially capable of paying for their care. So we do a lot to make sure that, you know, just imagine a society where you come show up at the emergency room and they're like, all right, you know, person's here with a gunshot wound or, you know, their leg got chopped off and they're bleeding to death. Sir, do you have a credit card that we can run before we let you in the emergency room? Of course that doesn't happen. That would be barbaric. That would be absolutely intolerable in our society. And we know that. And believe it or not, there was a time when that did happen. But, you know, we, we don't have that as a rule. So, the, sure, they'll ask you, do you have insurance? No. Okay, well, we're still going to treat you. They'll deal with it later. They'll deal with how they go about collecting that money in different ways. But there's an urgent, critical life or death need that's happening right now. And the, you know, the Hippocratic Oath that a doctor takes, that they will do no harm and will do everything they can to save a life um, within their skill and ability and will not not turn the other way and allow someone to suffer. Um, now, what? why don't we have a similar standard in the legal system? Because, of course, the way it works is if you have any resources like a car or a savings account or a 401k or whatever, we require people to liquidate those assets and pay for a lawyer because they're beyond the cutoff for where they would be eligible to have public defender representation. So there's nothing, you know, in, in the federal laws or constitution or the holding of Gideon or any of its progeny that occurred after that, that says states are where the state should um, apply that cutoff line. What, and it's the states are perfectly free to say, if you have any asset whatsoever, you know, if you've got your grandfather's watch that he left you in his will, you've got to sell that because and, and find money on your own. So you have to be completely without resources. Basically, I mean, I'm, I'm putting it a little bit stronger than it really is. There is some leeway. But the point is that what makes somebody um, indigent is is a very, very tough standard. And if anybody has any anything, they're expected to liquidate it in order to come up with funds. Now, there is a gray area. And our state has, like many other states, has done everything it can under the current legal structure to try and find representation for people that aren't purely indigent. And that's done through two different means. One is that um, there is a little more flexibility when it comes to what we call dean appointments. And that means that the court can appoint a lawyer who's willing to take a case at a certain rate for compensation. And the standards by which one has to prove their indigency is a little different. You can have some assets, but the judge has the discretion to make that determination that, okay, it's not reasonable to ask somebody to, you know, sell their home or, you know, move out, not, not pay their rent or their bills in order to have help. That's at an extremely low rate of compensation. There's also public defender appointments, which are necessary because of number one, potential conflicts that occur within a public defender's office, but two, the utter lack of funding that um, goes along with how 
we run our public defender institution in the state um, vastly under-resourced, vastly underfunded, and not anywhere near enough actual attorneys in any public defender's office throughout the state that can handle the uh, workload that is handed to them, that they have no control over, right? So what happened is there was a, as we know, there's been through a combination of things, COVID's part of it, but it's also just been a, a very large swing um, of out of economic necessity where there are very few lawyers who are capable of um, accepting an appointment from either a judge or the public defender's office because of the extremely low rate of compensation. It's like, it's basically asking somebody to do something for free without the kind of compensation that we see in other programs where we ask professionals to do things for free. You know, like there are clinics that um, receive federal and state funding for low-income people to receive health care. And the doctors that work for those clinics are compensated like doctors get compensated because we put value on that service and we understand how important that is. But you see why we have this ongoing problem. Our legislators and frankly our voters don't care that much about the rights of a defendant who's being charged with a crime. Why? Because it's much easier to believe that if we incarcerate more people and if we don't really care much about mounting a defense or exercising one's rights and make it so it's more expedient to convict people, we can round more people up and incarcerate more people because that's what people win elections on. You hear it all the time. The tough on crime stance. There's a candidate out there right now that is saying if he were elected governor, he would fire all the weak DAs, which, by the way, a governor can't do. You probably know this, but DAs are elected. They don't get fired by the governor. Okay. Um, so anyway, we are running out of time, but we will continue the discussion next week as we do every week right here on Legal Defense with Kirk O'Bear. And we hope to get John in here next week as well. 1330 and 101.5 WHBL. Have a great weekend.